Welcome to Inviting Doom, a podcast about faith, bad theology, and stepping into ideas marked as dangerous for the soul. I'm Sarah, one of your hosts. And I'm Krista. We'd love you to join us as we unlearn old beliefs, navigate current issues, and explore the previously unexplored religious frameworks in our lives. Everyone, uh, welcome back. We decided that we're going to start um, talking about trauma again because we had done a few previous recordings, and then that was quite some time ago uh, for us because we were recording throughout COVID and whatnot. So those recordings were um, were older in sort of our timeline. Um, but there's so much sort of to unpack, and we're always finding new things. So we are going to talk about trauma again today, and we hope that you guys enjoy this, because I think we have a lot of good stuff that we've been thinking about and pondering these, this last while. Yeah, so I had seen an Instagram post about intergenerational trauma from an account called Healing from Complex PTSD, which sort of started a whole discussion that you and I had about the lack of safe space in church. And first, it's good to understand what trauma is. A lot of people think trauma is the event itself which is why many people don't feel like they have the right to frame something smaller as traumatic. Like if I didn't suffer in war, get beaten by my parents, there's no real trauma there. But a basic definition of trauma is um, the lasting emotional response that often results from living through a distressing event. Experiencing a traumatic event can harm a person's sense of safety, self, sense of self and ability to regulate emotions and navigate relationships. And so trauma is how your body and mind frame the event and deal with it. As a child, many things can affect how safety feel and kids don't have any power or control. So repeated events or teachings that affect their safety and understanding of themselves can have long-term traumatic event effects. If these aren't dealt with, they can be passed down. Um, so Health Magazine writes about intergenerational trauma saying generational trauma is trauma that isn't just experienced by one person. It extends from one generation to the next and it can be silent, covert and undefined surfacing through nuances and inadvertently taught or implied throughout someone's life from an early age onward. Its symptoms may include hypervigilance, a sense of shortened future, mistrust, aloofness, high anxiety, depression, panic attacks, nightmares, insomnia, a sensitive fight or flight response, and issues with self-esteem and self-confidence. We have been talking about how church culture often frowns on secular counseling or additional help aside from scripture and praying, Without being given more tangible coping tools, tools and frameworks, churchgoers often continue on in the traumas they inherited from their parents without realizing how these traumas affect their interpretation of scripture and the vision of what Christianity should or could look like. Uh, the post outlined traumas passed from generation to generation um, going down the levels. Something like your grandparents suffered through abuse and war, domestic violence, PTSD, discrimination, oppression, deep gender inequalities and stereotypes, mm. as well as physically strenuous factory jobs, unemployment, the Great Depression. There were alcohol and substance dependency, dependencies in families that were unchallenged. Minor things, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no big deal. No big deal. And this carried, <laughs> carried on to your parents down a level, right? It may have manifested and as repressed emotions. Continued, continued alcohol substance misuse, attachment issues, difficulty understanding themselves and difficulty regulating or expressing appropriate emotions. 
Uh, they had to navigate increased economic pressures, migrations to new countries, racism, discrimination, isolation, and increasing mm. individualism. Society had few tools and frameworks for discussing and diagnosing mental health issues and inequalities. Mm. And then here we come, right? Their traumas carry on to us. And that can manifest as strenuous parent-child relationships, fight, flight, three spawn responses that we had Hello. talked about before. <laughs> yeah. Anxiety and depression. This leads to burnout and disconnection in a hyper-individualistic society. We often don't have an inherited healthy community. And simultaneously, we're trying to carry the weight of our own issues and the unaddressed traumas of our parents. Totally. And like when we had talked about that too, that even that burnout and disconnection and what you had talked about in previous podcasts, if I'm just inserting a thing here is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're longing for a community. Like once you kind of have to deal with a lot of this traumas that you're, you're dealing with where things don't work out, it's like suddenly you're, um, you're having to change community. And of course our parents, mm-hmm. if they were migrants and they moved from one place to another, they were also changing community. And these themselves are yeah. quite isolation and that is quite traumatic in itself of having to be alone and actually mm-hmm. figure out yourself. Right. Um, but yeah, like in light of that, when I look now at a lot of Christian living values, like the norms sort of that we have um, that were supposedly biblical and supposed to guarantee healthy family and society, um, I think many were just based on either poor information about humans' mental, physical, and emotional development, or like outdated social norms that suited the structure already in place. Um, it's very difficult to change structures if we're looking at like, you know, the discussion being there's no safe place to sort of talk about traumas. Um, and the structure isn't very conducive to to questioning. It's very difficult to change structures because the people who are employed by them, who control them, who decide what those structures look like, they have vested interests in keeping those structures the same. It's like, why would you have women pastors uh, if men are already doing it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and controlling what the messages are and deciding mm-hmm. the big decisions for the church about budget, about whatever else. It's a lot of hassle to suddenly change the whole system and also change the beliefs that are supposed that had supported that original version of that system of like, yeah. you know, men are the head and, you know, women shouldn't teach and whatever. So you have to, it's a lot of hassle to suddenly change that entire system and the beliefs underlying it, especially when you assume that original version is from God. And of course, like, why would you change it if you might lose your job to a woman after you do it, right? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't, like, it it actually is counterintuitive. Um, And it's often the people who benefit the most from current systems who are also the ones who, um, uh, the ones who are in charge of them. And they're supposed to be mature enough to change those systems, even if, that change doesn't benefit like even if it doesn't benefit Mm -hmm. them so they're supposed to be spiritually mature enough economically mature enough like like that possibility that a woman pastor might take your role if you suddenly decide that women pastors are allowed to teach um Mm -hmm. so you're supposed to be mature on all these deep levels in order to expand your rights and expand your um horizon to include other people right Mm -hmm. um and while this is true for obviously many structures in society like outside of church um sort of the problem that you and i have been discussing is that many believers view these structures and values um that they operate out of as 
God ordained. And our big <laughs> discussion so far has been like, why is it so hard for church to change? And why wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great if there was this kind of space and your blog post had talked about it? Wouldn't it be great if you're, if the church space allowed for ABCD? Um, yeah. And so if you have a God ordained structure or system, it, th- there's very little wiggle room to question anything because it's yeah. all from God. Like, why would you question it? Why would you question God? And so that really hinders um, space to discuss the things that, well, that we've now decided decided to talk about on this podcast because we didn't have space elsewhere. So we made our own. Yeah, totally. Uh, God is actually made very tiny in this regard, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than being able to handle the nuances and contradictions and struggles and complexities of human existence, God can't tolerate some of these things that we find difficult in church, same-sex attraction, teenagers' hormones, women's equality, gun regulations, public schools, whatever you want to call it, you know, in, in without dissolving into some sort of tantrum. Um, if God is the creator of everything, he has to be big enough to understand our complexities, yeah, <laughs> including yeah. how gullible we are, our traumas, our poor understanding of ourselves in history, our biases and bigotry, our fears. This would have to include God understanding that some people are just logically after their traumas and terrible experiences within church won't be able to find peace and comfort there anymore if these constrained environments and relationships don't mature, you know, mm-hmm. and don't change. And even if they did change, they still might not know that they've changed enough to feel safe to go back. Healthy development actually requires a much bigger and more gracious space and a more bigger and gracious God than what is often found and delivered within the church spaces. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like you and I have maybe touched on before too, how much, you know, you internalize stuff. But for me, there was this initial fright in imagining that God could actually be huge and actually be generous and actually be loving, like in that fullest capacity, in the capacity, actually, obviously bigger than myself, but in the capacity that I was feeling those things of like where I wanted to include people and I wanted to not judge. And I wanted to do like to expand that circle. There was that fear of imagining that God could function in that fullest capacity because deep down I knew that in expanding that circle, I was moving very far away from the version of God that I've been taught through um, various evangelical spaces. Um, being aware that I was stepping outside of a very well-defined religious box and well-defined God was incredibly scary. Obviously, you know, there's hope there. It was it was incredibly hopeful to think that maybe God wasn't as petty and preoccupied right. with his roles. Right. Yeah. Or maybe God doesn't care as much about swear words (laughs) as I'd come to believe. And I know for other people, it's like God maybe doesn't care that you have a glass of alcohol or the legalism there. Right. Um, And so like imagining that God could actually bigger be bigger was both comforting to me, but it was also petrifying because I knew that I was I, you know, you have now left. You have now left wherever. Right. Kansas. Yeah. You're, yeah. You've now you're like, entering. Yeah. Somewhere else. Um, so, and as usual, I can hear, of course, when I was thinking about all this stuff, I could hear my old Christian self fretting about the, uh, that conclusion, you know, of like, oh, well, that just means God and truth are relative. You know, if you can just sort of decide that God is now bigger and he includes these things and includes these people and whatever, mm-hmm. If anyone can just decide what God cares about or what true Christian living looks like, you know, 
then that's just relativism and everyone's just making up their own thing and it's just a free-for-all and society's going to go up in flames like that kind of like <laughs> extremist christian thinking that i often had like internalized right mm-hmm. um but like let's be clear humans have continually decided what god cares about and what being a true christian looks like continually it's always mm-hmm. been relative to the society culture uh, and politics present in any given period of history, depending on people's understandings of themselves, understanding of science, understanding of the world around them. Um, things like when people didn't even know the world was round or they didn't know what other countries existed or they didn't know about, about bacteria or they didn't know all this stuff that affected how they interpreted God and how they interpreted reality and how they interpreted other people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Like at one point, many Christians decided that God wanted them to burn witches um, based on the verse in Exodus, I think you shall not suffer a witch to live. So and Mm -hmm. at another point, you know, many decided slavery was okay, um, or or women shouldn't vote. So there's all these times throughout history where God has looked very different. And the, the values and the hard line Christian living reality things were set down in relation to the culture, society, science, scientific understanding, global understanding, whatever. Like my old Christian self would have framed questioning beliefs as a slippery slope. Like if I were to throw out one Christian principle or framework, Mm -hmm. I'd suddenly be living a life without a moral rudder, adrift, you know, adrift in a sea of sin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kind of yeah. like throw out one thing or you poke a hole in one thing, then it's all going to just come crumbling down and you're going to have no morals and you're going to have no, you know, bearings. Mm-hmm. And often for those of us who have deconstructed, it does kind of feel like being adrift, like we talked about that. Um, but we yeah. learned to obey God uh, because we had learned to obey God rather than obtain tools. And I think that that's a really good point. It's just that um, a lot of us feeling disconnected and feeling adrift and feeling lost is because when you're taught strict obedience, your your choices are made on just do this or don't do that, um, mm-hmm. rather than understanding yourself. So really questioning Christian principles or even how God is painted is not the same as throwing out your ethics and your morals and your values. It's like, oh, I don't believe women are inferior anymore. Guess I'll just go murder the elderly or whatever like it's they're they're not equivalent it's a false equivalence yeah um and I had sort of made a a note when we had discussed this topic before that the Adam and Eve story essentially frames reality that way it's like question anything around you and the entire world and every facet of your existence is doomed to violence and pain and death for the rest of our days right Um, And if your name isn't written in the book of life at the end, it's into the burning lake for you. So a lot of times I think those kind of sandwiched things, the, the origin story of the garden of Eden and the book of revelation kind of sandwich us in to the specific interpretation that if you question, or if you um, try to, to think for yourself and figure yourself out, you're kind of actually, again, bringing doom into your life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So it's no wonder, you know, church teaches obedience and submission and not to question or think too much about certain beliefs, rather than how to understand the effects that those poor ideas and teachings are having on our bodies, having on the world and having on others, um, and what healthy boundaries and tools look like, because a lot of things we would change if we were taught 
tools and healthy boundaries and healthy relationship standards rather than just obedience. And so what we've we've said before is that we had this feeling that God was leading us out of this constrained authoritarian version of God into kind of a more expansive and more generous understanding of God, where we could finally breathe and kind of be in our bodies and exist fully. But I mean, the contradiction, of course, is that it would be a fairly, a fairly cruel God that would sort of simultaneously lead genuine searchers like ourselves out into freer pastures, while also convicting genuine churchgoers that the length of their skirt is too short. Like those are two mm-hmm. very different directives from God. And one is saying you can only find God through this book and through these standards, which is what we came out of. And the other is saying, come, you'll only find God outside of these standards. Um, and there's all this pressure for us to get it right or else God will be mad. And so I think that that, yeah, it's a tough one to kind of find God in that. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm just going to insert something here too before I carry on, but I just listening to you too, I felt like one of the uh, things that popped out to me is how different it is when just a regular congregant goes through some of these questionings versus the pastor himself. If the pastor were to stand in front of his congregants and say, you know, I read the scripture this way and, you know, I think women are, uh, you know, equal to men and we're going to have them teach or whatever, that would be considered in his church a spirit-led approach and Hmm. if we do stuff like that on the outskirts a lot of times it's backsliding or we're not hearing from god and um so i just think that there's some interesting differences based on position how how certain things are framed um because a lot of these things you could say well the spirit of god is leading us to believe different things and we're following the spirit of god versus Mm -hmm. um you know we're falling away from god and we don't hear from god anymore and we're heathens or backsliding but all in all, from what you said, I, yes, I totally agree. I think it's kind of crazy how we always put the onus on ourselves, even though God is supposed to be this, the superior, all powerful and all loving being. And here we are like living in fear of getting the doctrine and the details right and overcoming our trauma by ourselves, you know, or else doom. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he really is the great healer, if we believe that he would be the one to walk beside us and heal those wounds in the appropriate ways and not be forcing us to re-traumatize ourselves in unhealthy spaces or uh, or places back into the cycle to you know like toughen up quote unquote Mm -hmm. i feel like that's a very like american north american thing of like we'll toughen up um so yeah i think it's a it's a bit backwards in a lot of ways i look at the church now and i think if god is real and god exists and he's all loving I don't think that he would be walking into many of our churches today and like recognizing the practices or even some of the people, <laughs> you know, could I say that? Yeah. I think that he'd be like, who are you? Yeah. What are you guys doing? <laughs> What's going on? It's, kind of, it's <laughs> kind of bizarre to me now that I'm on the other side of it. Um, and obviously people are well-intentioned. So Like that's something that's weighed on me so much in the past where there's just such a drastic difference between intentions and impact. And I've had to learn that so many different times where at least in church spaces or the way I was raised, if someone hurts me, I first look at their intentions and it's like, oh, well, they didn't mean to. So then that pain is brushed off, Mm. but you have to pause and say, okay, yes, Maybe someone didn't mean to hurt you. Maybe the church didn't mean to hurt you. But just because they didn't mean to doesn't mean that they didn't actually 
have that impact, that that wasn't actually quite hurtful, that those interpretations of scripture weren't actually quite damaging. Yes, and I think yes. that that's where we are with churches right now. They are so slow moving because they're such big institutions and they can't seem to shift to more fair um, doctrine as well as just like thinking through things empathetically to say like, oh, yeah, we, we didn't mean it like that. But I can see how our impact is actually coming across. Mm. And I'm not saying that we should casually change scripture to suit us or to you know, coddle us. But I think that there are things that we could look at and be like, wow, we've really gotten this wrong. Mm-hmm. Obviously, look how long it took for churches to get over slavery. And even after laws were passed, there was segregation in churches. We still have segregated churches, mm-hmm. the black church, the white church, the Latino church. So if laws and some culture shifts don't actually change how pe- people think and how church, how do churches actually change, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it goes back to some of this legalism versus the spirit of love approach or following the spirit of God. Um, and I'm not sure that when it comes to God and it, and it comes to church, that church is the best place for healing when we're prescribing certain black and white ideologies without actual room for humanity and room for the gray. Mm. And that's pretty tricky because if you're in the church community, that that is your only place to heal without some major upheavals in your life. Moving forward, churches would do so much better and thrive so much more in a healthy way if they could take a position that says, honestly, in a lot of ways, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah. and we're kind of working it out together and we're just going to love people as hard and the best that we can. So we're not going to pretend that we know everything and that we are actually God and that people should submit to us and that, we're the all knowing people mm. here and you guys just need to get in line. But that will probably only ever actually occur in interpersonal relationships like you and I have, where I can leave space for you to believe whatever you want to believe. And I don't actually need to control you. I don't need to bring you back to my interpretation of scripture. I don't need to make sure you believe the quote unquote right thing. I can just love you and say, Oh yeah, you know what? That makes sense to me. I understand you and your position. And maybe I don't agree with, with with what you're seeing in my own walk and my own journey, I believe something completely different, Mm -hmm. but because I can understand you and hear you out, I actually don't care what you believe Uh because I don't need to control you to love you. And if God really gave us the free will that we rely on so much, I don't know why we're trying to take that free will away from other people who are going on a journey or try to force them to believe like we believe when they should probably just be wrestling with their own faith. Not to mention, we could have a completely different conversation on if people actually have free will. You know, birth country, culture, social status, ethnicity, among tons of other things, put pressure on us and shape the choices that we are, you know, one, able to make and two, very likely to make, given our understanding and position and the resources we have available. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a huge discussion as well as like how much ability we actually have when we don't have tools and we have certain frameworks and understandings of our lives of like how much we're actually able to to change and make alternate decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, just one little like quick side segue about what you said about the love sort of thing. Like, I don't have to control you to love you. And I think like damn, that's, (laughs) that's like a whole podcast thing there about how, (laughs) and I think often the church views 
control as love because it's a fear-based, it's a fear-based system as soon as you have hell in the mix because control equals loving if you're preventing people from going to hell, right? right? If you, if you would rather tie your child up in a bedroom for the rest of their life, that would avoid them being struck down by a car and dying. You know, it's that control issue. Like I'd rather you be in bondage, but alive than be dead. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it really comes down is, is we're talking about a system of fear that is more interested in control. Like Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. Mm -hmm. And that's like that equation between obedience being love. It's like, that's not love. Like that is not what love is. Love is not obedience. Like love, a love obedience relationship is, is one of control and dominance. Um, But yeah, that, that's a whole different conversation. Um, But sort of what you're talking about, if we go back, it's like um, that general theme of like churches being able to progress. Obviously, that plays into it. It's like it's very difficult to progress when you're actually trying to save people from hell. And so and and with that comes a certain set of ideas um, about how to live to avoid hell. So that's very difficult to change. And especially when you your interpretations of the afterlife and your interpretations of Christian living, you believe are ordained by God. Like you said, the pastor, if the pastor were to come up to the pulpit and say A, B, or C of this is how we live as better Christians, everyone goes, oh yes, this makes sense. This is a spiritually decided, um, a spiritually revealed message. Um, We can all get behind that because we pay our pastor to do that. He prays all week and he's on his face all week uh, asking God for guidance. He's reading all this Christian stuff. So he must know we can get behind that. So when all those systems come from pulpits, um, as God ordained, it's very difficult to progress and change um, because the rules around Christian living and obedience to God are directly from God himself. Um, It becomes problematic when you realize that God didn't just make the rules, though, And this is where the issue is, is that it's not just that God is, you know, making those rules. He's designed this whole system. So the powerless feeling and the fear feeling that you have to often have when you're questioning these things and when you're trying to leave some of the harmful impacts, like you said, intention versus impact, the impacts, it's that it's not just rules that you're contesting. It's the structure of the entire system that God has made. He made humans. He made the universe. He made whatever. That's what we're told. And so there's actually no one to appeal to. So in, say, for example, in the national sphere, um, if you're um, in the national sphere, if you're looking at national laws, we have politicians, we have activists, we have scientists, we have sociologists, and we have other professionals Um, We have policy and lawmakers, we have court systems and judges, and that they allow for these systems, whether slow or fast, allow for information and research, they allow for an appeal of unjust laws. So where laws had said women can't vote or whatever, like we have chance to through activism, through uh, small court decisions, whatever, to appeal unjust laws. In the evangelical Mm -hmm. sphere, there's no appeal. God just said so, so you do it. And in that framework, many people are simply just like 
excluded. Like you're just out. If you're gay, you're out. If you don't obey, you're out. If you're Muslim, you're out. If you do A, B, or C, you know, such people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You are out and there's no appeal. You can't appeal the rules. You can't appeal the system because it's God ordained. And these reinforce each other um, in the way that if, you know, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then his rules can't change. And if the rules can't change, like how God is viewed or interpreted can never be questioned. And church bodies can never be wrong because they're following those rules from a God who never changes. Um, And because God is never wrong and he doesn't change, you kind of end up having this hostility in a way that sets in where um, it's not just the, the sort of the glossing over of people's pain and glossing over questions of like, oh, I'll just trust God. There's also a bit of hostility where when you really start to question and be problematic um, and challenge views about God um, and about, you know, addressing that people are leaving the church, it, it gets a bit hostile because people have built their whole lives on this system. And they also mm-hmm. genuinely believe that this system is from God. And so it's like, how could I be wrong? I follow Jesus and Jesus is never wrong. You know, um, how dare you kind of uh, yeah. in a sense question my faith and my question, my interpretation of those things. Cause I'm right. I've always prayed. I've always fasted. I've always done these things. Of course I'm right. And that's how you get these really extreme polarizations where people are genuinely serving God in that they're praying and fasting and doing whatever and going to church and bringing their kids to church. But their, mm-hmm. their system that they're in has just said, well, the way that we interpret is from God and God's never wrong. God never changes. So then of course they take that personally. Um, essentially though, like, you know, we have to make that distinction that if God exists, how he actually is, if he, if he's up there, how he actually is and how he is interpreted by humans are two completely different things. We often think that how we're interpreting or or even how the Bible was written or how the Bible was compiled or how the Bible was interpreted throughout the generations, that that is the same as God. But God is separate from however humans decide to interpret him or or it or whatever. Um, And just having to be aware that God has been interpreted vastly different in vastly different ways throughout history. Um, And really, so whenever like I as a believer would feel this deep sense of injustice by what was either happening to me or what I saw church culture doing to other people, um, say like uh, for me, when I experienced a really deep sense of inferiority, um, of to men, like I, I felt like women weren't valued as much as men. We didn't have as much say or as much presence. Um, or even when people's sexuality didn't match sort of the heteronormative ideals of like one man, one woman. And when there were these sort of mini conflicts, uh, in the church, that deep sense of injustice that I felt, I I essentially just responded by gaslighting myself into thinking that this sense of injustice that I was feeling um, was me being deceived by the world's humanistic values, uh, or that I shouldn't question it too much because God knows everything. And I was probably too stupid to understand why his rules were there. Um, It's sort of in the 90s and the 80s and 90s, there was a huge um, movement, a human rights movement, especially in the 90s, um, to to looking at human rights, to the Millennium Development Goals, um, all this sort of stuff. And 
that was almost framed when I was growing up as sort of this humanistic turn of like, oh, we're focusing on humans too much and we're focusing on social injustice too much. Um, it should be about saving souls. And so when I would feel this sense of injustice, I would just press it down in me and be like, well, actually God's rules of excluding these people are for a reason and God's rules of like headship and all this, that must be for a reason. I'll just, I, I'm obviously, I'm obviously the problem. Uh, and that's sort of, I think in a, in a sad hilarity, um, now that I'm sort of out and I'm like, I have space without those rules, I'm allowed to be sort of kinder and I'm actually allowed mm -hmm. to be a more humble person in my interactions outside of that church framework than I could ever be in it, like ever than I was allowed to be in it because mm -hmm. God was so small. So God was excluding people. It was God who didn't want women to lead. It was God who ABCD, right? So mm -hmm. now sort of outside of that, I don't have to know the answers. I don't have to get people to convert and conform to my standards. Um, I'm free to be fully empathetic with others' experiences without judging them or trying to herd them in a direction. Um, mm -hmm. When I got rid of a lot of those evangelical values, I wasn't that boat adrift on a sin of sea, you know, like I had said before, I, I, yeah. or a, a sea of sin. Um, I was allowed to gain actually a whole pile more um, standards and ethics and things that mm -hmm. I actually, that were more in line with me and that I had wanted to express. Um and I guess if I ramble on slightly more as I usually do, um, to your point of free will and, um, you know, and now having space to not control other people, like I can love you without controlling you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think you nailed the issue on the head about why it's hard to have an evangelical safe space for questions. It's like you can't have a long term lasting community if you don't have clear boundaries that outline what that community is. So reinforced borders in in international studies or whatever, reinforced borders give us those clear distinctions between groups. That's why we have nation states. That's why we mm -hmm. have those identities is because we've developed and constructed these very clear borders around land masses and groups of people. Um, it's sort of like if you, I don't know, if you if you never take your clothes off, it's pretty tough for you to be a nudist, right? You so we have <laughs> idea of who's who's it who's a nudist and who's not based right. on simple things right mm -hmm. um so there's these automatic checklists that we all have that make us like or unlike others in small ways and i mean that's normal i'm sure that's developed and involved for a reason um evolved for a reason uh and of course these rapidly though tend to spill into a kind of a tribalism like war bigotries racism and it very rigidly exists within religions you know, you have some religions have 10 gods, not one. And that's the defining factor or our God likes, you know, war, not pacifism. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, if you finally find a church, uh, if we're talking about, a, you know, why a church can't progress or wouldn't it be great if a church were like this? It's like, unfortunately, if you find a church that is able to not control and is able to hold space for a wide variety of experiences and approaches to spirituality, 
then you actually cease to have anything that resembles a traditional evangelical church, <laughs> right? Because it's defined by heaven, hell, angels, demons. It's defined by a very clear set of ideas about us and them. And we believe this and they don't believe this. And so you kind of have, um, you kind of lose that version of community and you lose adherence because what happens is the broader that our understanding is of the depth of human experiences, the less likely you have that sort of emotional need to hunker down into one specific united community for the rest of your life. When you start to realize you have commonalities with people on the outside, when you, when it's not that us, them, angels, demons, heaven, hell kind of thing, when you start to realize you can actually be part uh, of other communities and you, you resonate with other people then you don't even necessarily need to be in that one group to find fulfillment in your life and to find spiritual meaning and to find insight and to find um, depth and healing, right? You can mm-hmm. actually be part of many communities um, and any communities in a sense that hold the same values of acceptance, the same values of humility and inclusion and equality. And so you're yeah. sort of following your heart in a way when you're allowed to be that bigger version and when God's allowed to be that bigger version, it's a little bit scary because he actually does become bigger, meaning you can't just hunker down into one community and, you know, bolt the doors and go, okay, this is us. And everyone else out there is scary and the world is awful and the world does this and the world does that. And it's like, well, actually there's not the world. It's like a bunch of different communities who have actually values in, in common with you. And Mm -hmm probably in many ways provide space and healing in ways that the rigid community can't. Um, And so in a way you could create this church, you know, that, that had that expansive understanding of people's path and that respect and lack of wanting to control other people's um, spirituality. But that would actually probably quickly dissolve into fairly non-committed adherence and, and, uh, you know, people attending, right? Because they Mm -hmm. are also involved in other communities. You wouldn't get that intensification of you're there on Monday, you're there on Wednesday, you're there on Friday, you're there on Saturday for practice, you're there on Sunday Mm -hmm. two times, because they would be involved in a bunch of different things. So it would maybe be a bit more like a, a, a different envisioned church with different structures would actually have fewer um committed adherence uh in the same intensity that we grew up in thoughts yeah i agree yeah i agree with you and it comes definitely to the church that like it exists as it is because of the borders that are in place and yeah. there is always going to be that in and out what we believe in and what we don't believe in but you know i'm thinking like evolutionarily speaking humans evolved in small tribes and we know that when religion was introduced all of a sudden our communities began to grow larger communities could mean disconnection but if we had a religion i have to personally know you if we had the same like rituals let's say we both believed in the sun god and had the same rituals now i can trust you because you're also a sun god worshiper and you do what i do and there is an allegiance and a safety there in sharing a common god which makes sense if you feel you're under threat, then it, it, it makes sense that you have these ways of connecting and identifying mm-hmm. like who's with you and who's against you. Totally. And so I think that it's interesting that it makes sense on paper and it also makes sense in our bodies to have 
safe groupings. And yet we also have these large societies now where we know so much more and we've matured so much in our capacity to understand the human condition and diversity of thoughts and values and religions. Like we know we can exist in a society where there are Muslims, Mormons, Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever else. And we can be completely on different political persuasions with a different set of values and our society still runs smoothly. Yeah, but if society on. has matured to a point, to that point, like why shouldn't the church, a smaller institution, be able to also mature? And we're supposed to actually be the light on the hill. We're supposed to be leading the way in things like this. So it's just interesting to me that we haven't figured out how to kind of coexist with different ideas, mm-hmm. even though obviously the church has a set of values and ideas. Like, I agree that we need the borders and that's what gives the clarity and makes the group clear. And perhaps I'm still, you know, honestly grieving the loss of church in my own life. But I always wonder and have that yearning, like, if we can do this in society, then we can do it in church. I think surely it can be better. Surely it could be different. If we've gotten that far in society, we can mature a bit as as a church and say, okay, we're not going to shun people who are gay and we're not going to ostracize people who are thinking through theology different. Maybe we have a pastor who talks about theology and what they think the Bible is saying and how it could be interpreted, but like not throwing people out of the church or starting new denominations because it's interpreted differently, you know, but Obviously, going back to the boundaries, you have to have some sort of clear boundaries for the community to actually exist. And it makes sense that it would dwindle if things are just kind of wishy-washy and all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like I think about um, in the United States, the evangelical churches over the 2020 era of the Trump campaign and the pandemic where they saw the churches who illegally stayed open and made such hard line stances about what they were against and anti-government and anti-science and whatever else, they had their churches explode with people going to them because they could see, like the people who wanted to attend those churches could see what their definitions were and what they were standing for and what they could get behind. And surely there were some people who were also just attending because their church was shut down and they wanted to go to church. But they had such clear boundaries and people who could get behind those stances now had a home in that. And we may have matured as a society on some level, but it's still likely like primitively in our bones and in our communities that we're going to battle with the us versus them mentality. And we're probably going to be playing against that for the rest of human existence because we are social creatures after all and we need community. But I still think there's a lot of room for the church to mature and even catch up to society in that regard. Yeah, for sure. It is a weird one because of course, like we're not going to avoid that us, them groupings. Like it's just, it comes sort of natural us to sort of like assess and categorize in some ways. Um, Yeah. And it is a weird one because of course a community in a way to build a long lasting community, that is the support that you need you do all have to sort of be committed to it, right? Mm-hmm. It can't be kind of, like you said, wishy-washy where you kind of maybe show up, maybe you don't. So that it's a double-edged sword is that when you get this, like maybe a more mature view of coexistence and a more expansive view of God, you kind of have less commitment in a way to create this intense community. But then maybe maybe the burden of existing is, is borne out in broader ways because you have more groups you're involved in who knows right 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would say sort of that, that imagining that if we're talking about being on the inside and, and, and when we were on the inside, um, this sort of more mature view that we're talking about of coexistence and a sort of a bigger version of God is quite petrifying, you know, and I don't know how you feel about this, but you kind of spent your life reinforcing the border, so to speak, to to mm-hmm. create that hard line between you and the outside world, right? I mean, I, I can't even remember the first time um, that I heard about, quote unquote, the world. And mm-hmm. it was just this constant attack and constant barrage and constant degrading of the world and all the things the world was doing and the world was this and the world was that. And you're learning that as a child. And so you're learning from adults in your life that this is a scary, dangerous place and the values are all wrong and it's all horrible and yada, yada, yada. And so you just are reinforcing this wall from a very young age. Um, you're not just learning from your parents you're learning essentially from your pastors and from your community three to four times a week. You're not just learning about the world is bad. You're learning about who you are in comparison to the world. So they're this, you're this, they're this, mm-hmm. you're this. Um, you're not of the world. You're a child of God. You're adopted by his family. You've been crucified with Christ. All these things that you are and they are not. And so if someone says, I'm thinking this version of God isn't great, kind of like how we have been discussing, or I'm not so sure about this sin stuff. It's like your entire identity that has been molded and shaped from being a child and the bones essentially of of your spiritual body that have grown and intertwined with specific ideas about God and sin and who you are in God, that's all being challenged. And so losing that clear community and strict boundaries or being willing to let those go that, that they've, and they've defined your life is basically you just opening everything to the unknown, right? Which we know as humans, we're not great at doing. So it essentially means you, you let the walls and the borders come down and you invite in everything, or this is how it's kind of framed, right? Like, it's like, oh, if you, you know, let one value go, then you're going to start like I said, murdering the elderly or whatever, right? Um, there's no, there's no nuance there. It's just either you do everything right or it's full on doom and full on disaster. Um, so essentially, it means when you're letting those borders down, you're inviting everything in. That you, you've been taught that all that stuff is harmful and scary and goes bump in the night into your life. You know, you're inviting that all into your life. You're being asked in a way to sort of break your own bones. Like you're being asked to, to eradicate the identity that you've built, break the bones of your spiritual self in the chance that it might heal differently and better, but you don't know. And you Mm -hmm. have been told, it's not just that you don't know, but you've been told that it won't. So you're in this position where the messaging and the standards and the norms aren't healthy for you and your whole being and your spiritual self has grown and intertwined with all of these ideas. Then you try to question and everything in you has been trained to not question because you've been told it's an us and them situation and that the world is disastrous and scary and awful. And then you're being told that there's essentially no support for you there because people are are wary of doubters. And so you have to do your own healing and your own questioning and your own breaking your own bones and, and reshaping yourself. And you're doing it all in this space where you have no idea what the outcomes are because you've never been on the outside, right? Mm-hmm. 
So because of these clear lines and um, these directives, I think are appealing, the, the clear lines and directives sort of bring a sense of order uh, to yeah. a seemingly chaotic world. And I think that that it makes sense, especially if you're looking in our context of intergenerational trauma, when you have kids, um, say our parents' generation, who have had some of those traumas in their own life that haven't been dealt with, that seem chaotic, that that threaten the sense of security, like we said at the beginning, uh, trauma being something that threatens a sense of identity or a sense of security as a child. Mm-hmm it makes total sense that you would reach for a rigid framework (laughs) that would tell you, oh, don't worry. Not only is God in control of everything that you don't understand and the chaos Mm -hmm. that you can't control, but also here are all these rigid to do's and to don't to do's and to don'ts. Here are all Mm -hmm. these rigid to do's and all the things that you shouldn't do to keep you safe, to make things clear and black and white and whoo, that's a relief. You know, you have these, yeah. these deep insecurities and these deep um, feelings of, of feeling not safe. And suddenly church culture is just like, hey, don't you worry. We've got a framework for that. You know, chaos is controlled, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it brings sort of a sense of order to a seemingly chaotic world. Uh, do this thing and you'll be safe. Um, or, or it brings a clear sense of belonging uh, basically when our world is passing at breakneck speed, like the changes, the technological changes, everything is going so fast. So it gives a sense of like, I would say a false sense of security, right? But in some mm-hmm. ways, uh, a calming sense of security. But yeah, it makes emotional sense to just not challenge it, put it in a box, don't think about it. Um, because when you let those borders down, if you genuinely want to accept people and you're genuinely trying to to follow that feeling of injustice that you have to, to be fair, you actually might end up with a hodgepodge of random people in your life who aren't safe, Mm -hmm. who challenge your thinking, who challenge you in ways Mm -hmm. beyond what you're comfortable with and who might Mm -hmm. ask you to keep breaking certain bones. So you might do a couple of snaps yourself where you're like, okay, I have to sort of get out of church. I have to, you know, follow this path out. Um, I'm going to change my idea of hell and I might change my idea of women. And then you have to start meeting new people and including more people who are like, oh, you might, this is not actually accurate either. And that's not accurate. And this isn't real. And that belief is having these effects on people, on indigenous people or on people of color or whatever. And you just are like, snap, snap, snap. You know, like you have to keep. Yeah. So so the 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 fears that I've outlined are are genuinely real. You don't have a support system. You don't know if what you're stepping into is real or true. You don't know if you'll heal better. And you don't know how long the change and the chaos and the breaking of the bones is going to keep happening. You don't know what the end point is, right? Yeah. It's a weird thing to step out of a, it's a, like the God's way or the highway mentality um, Mm -hmm. to imagine a different life and imagining god differently it's a whole different thing right yeah we had seen a clip you and i about trauma and it was about not trauma not being the event itself it's being the emotional reaction to and the memory of and the bodily responses to an event yeah and what the therapist was talking about in that clip was how some parents reaction to talking about this trauma was to dismiss it and say, well, you know, I can't protect my child from everything and there's pain Mm -hmm. in the world and they just basically have to learn how to deal with it. And the point that she continued to make was that, you know, trauma is a lesson when we are actually supported and when we're not alone in, in that journey, 
perhaps to a place where it isn't even registering in our bodies and in our minds as trauma. You know, it can start as one thing, but as we're supported and we're we're um, in a space that we can talk and and uh, process it, then it becomes kind of a, a non-event or just a memory. Mm-hmm. And what makes trauma more traumatic is not the event itself. Like life has pain in it and no group of parent can remove it. We're not seeing that. Mm-hmm. It's the feeling alone in the processing of that pain. It's the devaluation of people's doubts and fears and questions. And um, I had told you about a scenario in my own life where there was like a peripheral family dysfunction going on. And I was just getting like some sideline effects from it. And the response that I got from this family member um, as being just kind of like an innocent bystander was, well, sorry, but every family is dysfunctional. <laughs> and my response to that is actually, no, that's only something that dysfunctional families say. When we refuse to take responsibility and ownership and not be present and to not change, we are actually ensuring dysfunction. And that is actually going to make sure that there is trauma, right? So in the same kind of line as that, we have church culture and there's like this toxic positivity that can gloss over traumas and pains when it doesn't align with what scripture said would happen if we pray. Um, There are places where the version of God that we had come to believe in is kind of absent or or just fails us and doesn't work in the way that we thought that it would, or we were told that it would. Mm -hmm. And when we try to question those things or bring up like deep wonderings about that faith that we have and we're struggling with, during a traumatic life event, we can be told these pat answers that don't actually support us and alienate us. And we end up alone in the processing within that church framework. Within church, it ends up adding an extra layer of confusion because your whole family's in that usually. Your, all your friends are in that. Your whole support system is in that and your God and your faith. And so where in other areas of life, you could maybe turn to your God and your and your church for support. Here, you're kind of left like completely alone in that. And it almost is ensuring things that may have been benign become traumatic for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And you're a good point on that. Um, it's only dysfunctional families that say, oh, well, everybody has dysfunction. And it's sort right. of like that's a common thing that often happens with church is, and sort of there's this this dysfunction in church that when you bring up a problem and say, hey, because um, I've seen it and you've seen it in in blog post in Christian blog mm-hmm. posts, in people's postings that they say that they get from their families. It's like, oh, well, good luck finding a church. A church is just filled with humans. Of course, we're going to be, you know, of course, there's going to be problems or don't don't let your church experience affect your relationship with God because you're never going to find a perfect church. It's like, oh, geez, is that our bar? Like that bar is so low, right? That kind of like, well, you're going to have toxicity and you're going to have dysfunction in every single church. Good luck finding a good church. Don't let it don't let it stop your relationship with God. And you're just like, oh my word, is that what we've come to in terms of like healthy, healthy um, advice? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And we need to recognize that there's the spectrum, right? Like there's a spectrum between abuse and health. And you can have certain events take place along the spectrum, but as long as there is accountability and responsibility and presence and the commitment to change and be healthy, you can 
you can heal those things and move forward, right? So mm-hmm. even within families, like every family has its unique mistakes and dysfunction in some ways or some moments. I'm not saying that there are perfect families, but I'm saying there is a spectrum and the dysfunctional ones that are ensuring that trauma actually is present and continues in families and in churches are the ones who are saying, well, that's just, you know, that's that's, that's everywhere. That's just how it is. Right. And it's like, no, that's only something that people who are truly dysfunctional and, um, you know, committed to trauma say, because you are making sure that it stays that way. Well, I think, and that goes back to our conversation as well with um, the intergenerational trauma issue and how a lot of times how scripture is, is presented and how God is presented, it's presented as being, well, this is from God and this never changes and these standards are from God. But actually with the intergenerational trauma aspect, a lot of times there's no understanding um, that the way that those standards are being, those Christian standards and and um, values and Christian norms and interpretations of God are being held out, there's no understanding that that's actually often through a lens of that intergenerational trauma and traumas that haven't been dealt with. And mm-hmm. so you have these hardline sort of frameworks being not only set up, some time ago, but then passed down. And they're actually affected by people's trauma that has never been dealt with. And because of the us them structure of, well, we're us and they're the world and we're different from the world. And God's our great healer, as you had mentioned before, God's the great mm-hmm. healer. There's no in- invitation of, of uh, outside counseling or outside help or tools. And so you have this completely perfectly insular structure where where there's intergenerational trauma being baked into the codes and the standards and the systems that are then being passed on as if they're from God and no one can question them and no one can get outside tools from from counselors to say hold on there's a pile of red flags here in these relationships why are you equating love as obedience? You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and mm-hmm. so I think I had sent you a clip, uh, a quick clip. It was like on Gabor Mate and he was talking about how he, he obviously has m- discussed this before and he's done a lot of work with his son. Um, but he was talking about how he had slapped his son when his son was three um, across the face because his child was being sulky and pouty and, and his son wouldn't sing happy birthday when Gabor Mate was having his birthday party. So his son wouldn't sing happy birthday to him. And he talks now, he's like, how natural it is, obviously, for a three-year-old to have feelings of independence and wanting to assert themselves and and a child wanting to figure out their own boundaries and figure out their own emotions. And they have no power. They're continually told how to act and how to be and how to respond. And so it's really very normal for a three-year-old to be pouty and sulky and say, "Mm, I don't want to do it or I don't want to whatever. And he Mm -hmm. sort of pinpoints his own behavior of slapping his kid to his own childhood when he had basically learned a deep sense of being unloved and being unlovable. And then to have his own child in a sense, not love him, quote unquote, love him in that way by singing happy mm-hmm. birthday to him, it triggered this response of anger in him. And he sort of what was authoritarian and was just like, you're not getting any cake. And I'm now you, and there's violence against you for disobeying. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
I think a lot of the times there's so much rigidity and authoritarianism in evangelical spaces around how to act perfectly and exist in perfect ways. And it's easy to see how traumas and triggers from one generation could shape how that Christian living um, norms and standards, how they would be interpreted and passed on to the next without being questioned, right? If I think of like James Dobson's work, if you want to call it that damage, I don't know, in all his books on how to raise kids. It's so much like essentially beat the rebellion out of the kid. Like they can't be, they can't be rebellious. They can't be this. Make sure that you spank them. Make sure you're rigid with them. Make sure you're, it's like, oh my God, these kids are just like barely learning about their own existence and their own world and trying to distinguish themselves from um, from their surroundings with very limited tools and very limited emotions. But there's this own trauma, whatever Dobson had himself, but this own thing of like, you just have to enforce the law and you have to, which is, you know, how the, the uh, Bible can be interpreted as well as like God lays down the line at the end of the book of revelation by wiping the earth clean again, as he did Mm -hmm. in, in the Noah story, just wipe the earth clean. If you don't toe the line, it's just obliteration. Right. So it's assumed that a lot of these norms are from God. Um, And again, like I pointed out some of the, there are Bible verses that you can readily use to support that kind of authoritarianism and that kind of whatever. Um, But a lot, it's just assumed that a lot of these norms are from God, even though I think, they're probably trauma uh, mm-hmm. I interpreted. Yeah. Um, and it's the inflexibility and insecurity in questioning these interpretations that's the issue, less so than the actual maybe trauma itself. Uh, in in more mild cases, I'm not talking about abuse or anything, but but that inability for the church that you are involved in that is your whole life, like you said, to be able mm-hmm. to uh, look at things and go through the questioning and the doubting and the insecurity together. It's that inability to do that, that actually makes it incredibly isolating and incredibly um, troublesome later on. Yeah. Oh, and I was going to say, because you and I too, uh, there was a really good point that you had made. And, and we had laughed about this as we always do. We're like, this could be a whole nother podcast, but like, <laughs> I talked about, before we started recording on the toxic positivity part and you had totally nailed it on the head and you um, had said as we were talking about spiritual bypassing which again spiritual bypassing if people don't know spiritual bypassing is when there's an issue you gloss over the issue and try to tell someone or tell yourself to have spiritual feelings about that issue and and take a spiritual approach to that issue so someone's having a struggle and you hand them a thing or you tell yourself oh but i will just be peaceful about it or oh but i will just be grateful for it or i so mm-hmm. rather than walking through the emotion and rather than dealing head on with the actual issue you're telling someone to come to a result that should actually come at the end of a journey through an issue. And you're telling them to just bypass all of that process and just to result in gratefulness or result in happiness mm-hmm. or result yeah. in contentment without dealing with it. So yes. sorry, going back, you had nailed it on the head about spiritual bypassing and toxic positivity that really what they are is the idea of headship and submission to the head. So it's like, you've got this thing of spiritual bypassing of saying, 
or come to this result and come to this conclusion, what you're actually saying is submit to the head, submit to the head, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. in a gendered way, that leaves a lot of times no room for agency or independent processing. It's like, sit tight, little lady in the corner, and God, your father, husband, carekeeper will sort it all out, right? Yeah, exactly. But don't think about it. Don't process it. Don't deal with it. Don't you worry. You don't have any agency and you don't need to deal with it. You don't need to just sort of sit down and shut up and the head of the house or the head of the the world or whatever will deal with it all. You just be grateful and you just be happy. Can you expand that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, there's this scripture that says, you know, God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And this ends up getting thrown into your face quite a bit when you're processing some hard, hard things. Yeah. And, you know, you could be getting a terminal cancer diagnosis and it's like, well, God is working for your good. You know, so you just submit to his plan and you just you need to submit to the way things are going to unfold and have peace that he's got the whole world in his hands. Mm. And so it takes the your feet out from underneath you to actually feel very reasonable emotions in an unreasonable situation. And in day-to-day living, it also plays out quite a bit in the husband-wife submission game where, you know, wives are supposed to be just trusting their husbands and submitting to them and their their leadership in the home. And if they face a situation and have, you know, some thoughts or concerns or emotions about it, they can end up being kind of gaslit in that because they'll be seeing things like, well, you're just being dramatic or you're um, being hysterical. And you end up in the same spot where you're trying to force yourself to this end point of trust or gratitude or positivity when in real life, it's very reasonable for you to have certain reactions in certain situations. And when we try to force ourselves out of a reasonable processing Mm -hmm. to a traumatic event, you actually aren't even able to deal with the trauma itself. And it just will fester there because you're, you're trying to say like, Oh, well, I'm just not going to deal with that. I'm going to trust instead. And that doesn't actually means that you are able to forego your physiology and say, well, I'm not going to have an increased blood pressure in this circumstance. I'm not going to have any memories about this circumstance. We're not all that powerful. <laughs> you know, our mm-hmm. bodies when your body keeps the score. Great book. Everyone should read it. So, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of seeing in that same way with the submission and God being the head, you end up in the way it's positioned in evangelical spaces today, it ends up completely taking away your free will almost and your own processing your own independence as your own person to actually sit there and say okay I'm having a hard time in this situation that's actually a really good point and just what I was thinking about was when you were um talking about that sort of bypassing part I think there's a huge inability for you to heal as well like you're not just bypassing your own agency and bypassing your own um, processes, like you said, that are in your body that actually have to be dealt with, like they don't go anywhere. The way that you're wired to respond to certain things or the way that you view certain things as dangerous, um, like sex, for example, if that's a dangerous thing that is like, don't be sexual, don't be that your body has actually wired itself and your responses in your brain 
have wired themselves to, to reject and shy away from those things. So people talk about their bodies shutting down. People talk about like heart rate increases or stress or, or rashes or things that happen simply because they've been wired to, to respond a certain way, even if their head thinks a different way. And so mm-hmm. that, that being internalized, that process still needs to come out to heal and to move on. And if you're constantly telling people in that spiritual bypassing framework to, oh, just don't feel that way or don't think that way or come to this conclusion or be more spiritual or be grateful or how dare you not be happy about this or how, you know what I mean? Or like you said, the terminal cancer, well, just Mm -hmm. be, you know, don't worry, God's working it all out. And it's like, you're, you're totally bypassing your entire body, your entire uh, network of responses, your trauma and how to process that. You're not going to be more spiritual coming out of something that you've never actually walked through and you've never mm-hmm. actually processed. Yeah. Wrap up thoughts for you. Yeah. Cause I feel like we could talk it, about this forever. <laughs> yeah. I know I was, I was debating going on with it, but I think I'll just jump into <laughs> some wrap up thoughts here. Cause it, it does remind me a lot of a thought that was shared with me. That was basically summing up some research and what was said was basically that we don't feel anxiety over change per se. We feel and experience anxiety over perceived threat or vulnerability that change introduces. Mm. And here I can see how this applies to institutions of churches and individuals, but how a change could make the group vulnerable or confused and open other areas for reconsideration and perhaps even instigate an exodus of paving yeah. tithers and community of friends. Yeah. But also in the individual where the change can lead to a loss of faith and a disruption of normalcy and stability, relational shifts, and, you know, therefore support shifts. And while changes can introduce anxiety and grief, the lack of change also means that there would be only stagnation and therefore death. Like we, we need growth as humans for our mental health and our physical health and our spiritual health. So we need the room to actually wrestle with our faith. And to do that will take a lot of courage, actually, since as we've discussed, there's there is a high cost to challenging aspects of your life and your theology. But like what I'm arguing here and what I think we both are arguing here is that the cost is actually necessary for you to become fully yourself. And if you end up even staying with the faith, it's necessary for you even finding your faith. Yeah, totally. And, and there is that aversion to, to change, like you said, because it actually opens up. It's like that letting the the borders down, it opens us up to disruption and mm-hmm. things that we were told go bump in the night. And yeah. And yet the sad part is that we, we drastically need change and we're almost like opposed yeah. to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is, is hard, but I think too, in the, in the framework of trauma, it's also necessarily, uh, or it's also necessary, not just for you to become fully yourselves and have a functioning faith. It's fully necessary for you to, to do in order to have healing and become a more functional human being and not pass traumas on, like stop that intergenerational trauma um, and not stop pain. Pain's still going to be there. Life's going to be hard, but stop the effects to some extent uh, of those and allow people to have agency 
and compassion and space to process the fact that life is hard and that there are a lot of hard things and things don't make sense. So, I mean, this has a, been a long sort of conversation on your original um, blog post that you had put up. And mm-hmm. I think it's been really good, but I think you and I will probably cut it here because yeah. we'll carry on in different aspects talking about trauma in the next few episodes. So I think we'll probably just wrap it up here and say um, goodbye to everybody. And thank you for listening again. Yeah. Until next time. See you soon. Thank you.